We are going to start this morning in, uh, in Luke uh, chapter 22, but then move to John chapter 6 fairly quickly. You know, we have read through all of John chapter 6 over the last couple of weeks, and we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that today. As we continue looking at <clears throat> the Lord's Supper and what it means uh, and why we do it. As, again, as we said earlier last week, we talked about um, that the Lord's Supper pictures His death uh, and that we need the reminder of Christ's death on a regular basis. We need to be reminded that He died for us today and tomorrow and ne- next week. And so we do this. We take the bread and we take the fruit of the vine as a reminder that He died for us. And then we also talked last week that, that it is a picture of the new exodus. He, Jesus did this during a Passover meal when, when all of that history of Israel and their fleeing from bondage, they're fleeing from slavery. The reason we use unleavened bread, because they didn't have time for the, to put leaven in the bread for it to rise. They were fleeing from slavery. And it's a reminder to us that we too are called to flee from the slavery of sin. That we're called to, to not wait around, to not dabble in sin, to not to say, well, and maybe next week I'll deal with that problem, but to flee today. It's a reminder of us that we too have been called to exit, to remove ourselves from slavery. This week I want to talk about a third aspect that this pictures the new covenant. And then uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks, we'll also talk about the fact that it pictures a new identity for God's people, a new formation of God's people. And then finally, it looks to something better, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, in the second half of verse 20, He says, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So, we need to ask ourselves some questions. First of all, um, what is a covenant? What is that? Well, it's a a promise or an agreement between two people or two parties um, with mutual responsibility and mutual benefit. That should not be unfamiliar to you. We've talked about that before. Uh, In fact, last summer when we were talking about marriage, we talked about the fact that that marriage is the union between a man and a woman that provides mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. Marriage is a covenant. Malachi 2 talks about marriage being a covenant relationship. And so covenant is two people or two parties that, that make an agreement. They both have something to give and they both get something out of it. What's interesting is we read through the Bible and that's not always the way covenant works. I want to remind you of, of the covenants before we get to the new covenant of the covenants that God made with His people. Beginning specifically with Abram. He made what we call an unconditional covenant. He didn't require anything at all of Abram, but He made some rather amazing promises. Abram, you and your childish wife, childless wife, not childish, Though they did act that way sometimes, didn't they? Um, childless wife are going to have multiple descendants. Numerous descendants, Abram. Not only that, but I'm going to give those descendants this land that you live on, which you don't own. And then maybe the most amazing promise of all, Abram, through those descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's a covenant, a promise I make to you. And and by the way, Abram, you don't have to do anything right or wrong 
for that covenant to be fulfilled. And we know as we looked at the life of Abraham that he did a lot of things wrong, a whole bunch of things wrong to try to, to figure out how to do that in his own power and his own strength. And he made a mess of his life and some others' lives in the process. And yet God was faithful. And he gave him numerous descendants. And then time passed. Four or five hundred years passed. And God shows up again and he makes another covenant with all those descendants in relation to that land through Moses. This time he made a conditional covenant. He gave them something to do. And he said, you know that land that I promised to you? Well, it's yours. I'm going to bring you into that land. But your enjoyment of it, its fruitfulness, it is a land of of milk and honey, he said, but its fruitfulness, how it produces for you, whether or not your neighbors will attack you or not, whether or not I'll let you enjoy it, even though it's yours, is dependent upon some, some rules and regulations that he set down. He gave them the law and He gave them the sacrificial system that when they broke the law, they could still find a way to be forgiven of their sins. They could be in fellowship with Him. The Mosaic Covenant, very conditional. You do this, I'm going to do this. You don't do this, I'm going to do this. Nonetheless, those descendants are still there. The land is still yours. And that hasn't taken away the fact that through these descendants, I'm going to bless the earth. We fast forward 500 more years. God makes another covenant, this time with David specifically, but indirectly again through all of his people. In 2 Samuel 7, he promises David, David, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. And again, this is unconditional. He doesn't say, David, if you or if they. And we know as we read through the history of the kings, that they often didn't do what they were supposed to do. Many of those kings, many of the descendants of David, David himself, did some horrible, evil things. And yet God said, I'm going to do this. His people benefited, and we wonder and we maybe scratch our head, what's God getting out of this? (laughs) Does He feel... I don't know, how does God even feel? Does God feel? Does He feel left out? Does He feel wrong? Does He feel like He's been taken advantage of? Because His people certainly did take advantage of Him. 400 more years go by. And God speaks through the prophets, specifically Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And He says, as we read in Hebrews at the very beginning, I'm going to make a new covenant with you in the future. And it's going to deal specifically with the fact that I'm going to change your heart and I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to cleanse you from your sins. I'm going to do that. And Ezekiel adds, and, and the reason I'm going to do that is, is, has nothing to do with you really. It's, it's for my glory because you've really loused my name up among the nations. And so I'm going to do something that's going to bring me glory To all people. Remember he said to Abram, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then God sort of goes silent for 400 years. And then Jesus shows up. And he says the night before he dies, he takes that wording from Ezekiel and from Jeremiah. And he says, this cup is the new covenant. 
And we, and we look, and, and maybe today, and I don't know, his cup might have been a little bigger because they just passed one cup around, and we go, that's the new covenant. Really? I don't get it. You might need to explain something to me. How could this and this, how does that establish a covenant? And we need to go back a little bit now and, and think about some things that Jesus said to the people in John chapter 6 and see if we can make some connections. Because he tells them that that which they're about to drink is the new covenant. So back in John chapter 6, remember he feeds the 5,000. He's satisfied their hunger miraculously. And they get this idea in the back of of their, their minds going, hey, I like this. This is a pretty good deal. Let's find this guy and follow him around. Maybe this is going to be like what happened with Moses and the people. They just kind of got fed all the time. There was just this miraculous supply of bread every day. Maybe this is when Moses said there's going to be another prophet. Maybe this is the new prophet. So they follow Jesus. And he says in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, He points the finger and says, this isn't about miracles. It's because you ate the loaves and were filled. This is about being satisfied. This is about being nourished. You're following me because, rightly or wrongly, you want to be satisfied. You want to be filled. And then he says, but wait. You've traveled all this way. You followed me across the lake. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So he's, he said, wait a minute, you're chasing the wrong thing. You're chasing temporal food. There's something better. And they said, oh, yeah, we want that. Give us that. What do we have to do to get that? And he says in verse 29, well, this is what you've got to do. This is the work that God requires, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. And then he repeats that in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him has eternal life. He repeats it again in verse 47. Truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He says it three times. Pay attention, this is important. Belief will get you this eternal life, which he related to the food. And in the back of my mind, if I were there, and maybe their minds saying, yeah, I want this. I want this food that that will kind of satisfy eternally. That sounds good. I like a full stomach, but that sounds even better. So then down in 51, he he shifts the metaphor just briefly. And he, he begins to expound on what he means by believe. He says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So now he's saying, in a sense, he's telling us what belief is. It's it's partaking, it's eating of this bread. And he says, by the way, that's me. I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. If you want to live forever, then, then I'm the one. 
He repeats it in 53 and 54. Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has, there's that word again, eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. What does it mean to believe? It means to partake of the body and blood of of Christ. Nourishment is not from this or this or even a nice big loaf with butter and garlic sauce that's come out of the oven. Real nourishment is, he says, me. I'm, I'm real nourishment, Jesus says. Then he adds another metaphor in 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And then he expounds on what abiding means in, in John chapter 15. There's this image of a, of a plant. And, and we know that in the grapevine, there's, a, there's a, a main trunk and all the vines that come off of it are... You don't know about grapes and think about tomatoes, right? That tomato's not going to grow on the end of the vine unless that branch stays attached to the main branch which is getting nourishment from the ground. And he says, I am that vine, that main, and I'm the only way to get nourishment. If you don't abide in me, if you don't partake of me, if you don't believe in me, Whatever metaphor you want to use, guess what? You have no life. You're dead. You certainly don't have eternal life. Paul picks up on that idea and and, and runs with it in Colossians 3. For Christ who is our life. And in Galatians 2, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. See, he understood what Jesus was talking about. The only way to have life is by believing, partaking, abiding in Christ. Then at the Last Supper, Jesus says, this is the new covenant. And He said, this represents, stands for the blood that's going to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And we should go back to Ezekiel and Jeremiah and go, oh, they talked about a new covenant. They talked about cleansing and forgiveness of sins. So that, so that covenant, Jesus, you're saying is, you're going to shed your blood and I'm going to be forgiven. And my role, my requirements, what I've got to do to fulfill this is... Believe. Yes. That's the new covenant. And so, why do we do this? Because we forget that the only way to get nourishment is abiding with Christ. Because we'll walk out those doors in a little while and we will look for something else to fill us up. We will look for something else to make us happy. We will look for something else to satisfy us. It may be physical food. We may think, like Esau many years ago, I'm starving. I'll do anything for a pot of stew. I'll sell my birthright because I just need food. And for some of us, food may be what satisfies us. And we think, you know what? I'll be happy after my next meal. 
If it's good Italian food, that really may be the case, right? Some of us get satisfaction in, in what we do, in our job. Nothing wrong with, with doing a good job and, and being satisfied in that, but is that where you're getting nourishment from? Is that what your life revolves around? One way you might can tell is if, if, if work doesn't go well, and that affects my emotions to the point where I'm discouraged the rest of the day. I take it out on someone else. Guess what? You're not trusting that Jesus is enough. You have placed way too much emphasis on something else. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe your kids can be an idol. If only they would, then I would. Maybe that's behave, maybe that's understand, maybe that's learn something. Maybe that's doing what I've asked them to do 30 times. If only they would, then my life would be... Now, we want our kids to obey. We, we want to teach them well. We want to teach them the Word. We, we want them to learn to be obedient. Is that where you're getting satisfaction from? Is your day great when the kids are great and your day is lousy when the kids are lousy? Or is Jesus enough? Is He enough? It's a good question to ask. I will be happy when... If there's something that you put in that blank, then is Jesus enough? Maybe you're looking for a, maybe a different season of life. When I have kids or when I get married or when the kids are grown or when I've paid off this or when... Is that really what it is that's going to make you happy? Maybe it's stuff. If I can just get the next, the latest, the newest, if I could just replace that 20-year-old car... I'll be happy. Or is Jesus enough? And so that's why we do this, because we forget that He's enough. And this is a wonderful picture of partaking of His flesh and blood, believing in His sacrifice, that it's enough. Not only does it forgive our sins, not only does it make us whole, not only does it bring us into fellowship with the Creator of the universe, but it allows us access into His presence 24 hours a day, seven days a week. To ask for things that we may think simple like formula, or to seek His presence and His solace and His comfort when things really aren't going well at all, when we're struggling, when we can't understand what God is doing. And so we come and we, we do this because we need to be reminded that Jesus is enough. He's enough. And when we're looking for other things to satisfy us, what we proclaim to the world is Jesus is not enough. Yeah, I say I'm a Christian, but I act like something else really is, would be enough. And so we need this reminder on a regular basis. For us to say, for us to remember as we go into the world, Jesus is enough. He's enough for me.
And so we're going to do this together. As we always do, we, we pass out this little piece of unleavened bread, which is not enough to fill you up. But let it be a reminder that the only person that could give his life for you did so. When you thumbed your nose at him and said, I, I'm going to do it on my own. I can make it in this world. I can be my own boss. And the only one who could, who could give his life for you did so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son. God, we thank you that you have uh, made a way for us. You split the veil that we could come into your presence. God, I pray that you would use this as a reminder that you are enough. 